The reading is from John, chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple, the tables and exchanged money. Sorry. Uh, I lost a bit. And the temple court, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To this, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written for zeal, for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body after he was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled that what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray as we come to think about it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us by means of it. We pray that this morning you would help us to understand what this means, the sign that Jesus performs and what it points us to. We ask it in his name. Amen. Last week, we began a series in John's Gospel, looking at the seven signs recorded there, the seven major signs that Jesus performed. And John calls them signs because they are meant to direct us to something or to someone. These signs are meant to reveal who Jesus is, what he cares about, what he's doing in the world. And at the end of this book, at the end of the Gospel of John, John writes that Jesus performed way too many signs to record all of them in his gospel. But he says, but these were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so these signs that John records, they're not meant to entertain us. They're not meant to uh, make us feel good. They are meant to direct us to life. You want to live life as it's meant to be lived in the present? Well, follow these signs. You want to enjoy life in eternity? Follow these signs. 
and discover the source of life. That's what John is saying to us. And last week we saw that the first sign that Jesus performed was that miracle of turning water into wine. And we understood from that, uh, and Al Gibbs helpfully uh, showed us, that that shows that Jesus is the Lord of abundance. You know, we can get this idea in our mind that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy, he's out to ruin all our fun, but no, Jesus shows that God is the kind of God who brings 800 liters of the best wine to a party to keep it going. He's the kind of God who transforms a shameful situation, which is uh, what it is to run out of wine at a, uh, a wedding celebration, and he changes that into a joyous feast and, and uh, a celebration. And I think we love that sign. That is a great sign and a great word for us. But this week, we come to the second sign of John's gospel, and it shows that Jesus is not just all about uh, fun and games and parties. Sometimes he is shockingly confrontational. And I want to ask, is God allowed to be like this? Is God allowed to show passionate anger like what Jesus shows? The God that you envision, is it this God? I wonder what you make of the reading this morning. Jesus ties together a whip. He starts flipping over tables. He drives merchants and animals out of the temple courtyard. Now, what do you make of that? It's certainly not consistent with that lazy, one-dimensional picture that we often hear people speak about of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was meek and and. He was gentle. There's, there's plenty of evidence for that in the Bible, but he wasn't a caricature. He had uh, multiple facets to his personality. He was constantly surprising people with the things that he would say and the things that he would do. And I think if we're honest, we find this a bit surprising. And more than that, I think, I think there's a surprise uh, that's more than that, that this passionate anger is something that John points us to as a key sign of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I mean, what kind of sign is this? Where is it pointing us? Well, this morning I want you to see uh, two things from this sign that, that points us to who Jesus is. First is that Jesus is zealous for God to be known and worshipped. He's zealous for God to be known and worshipped. In order to understand this sign, it's helpful to know a bit about the context of the Jewish religious practices of the day. Three times a year, in obedience to the Mosaic law, um, faithful Jewish men living in Israel were required to pilgrimage up to Jerusalem and um, to do that three times a year. The Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. When they would come into Jerusalem, they were to offer certain specific sacrifices in the temple. Um, now, many of the people would be coming from quite a distance away, uh, certainly from the other end of Israel, if not from outside the country. They'd come along, and it was obviously not easy to bring those sacrificial animals with them as they came. You know how hard it can be to travel with children, right? And so you can imagine... The cross-country ship with, uh, 
cross-country uh, travel with sacrificial sheep and cattle needing snack breaks and bathroom breaks and all bleeding out. Are we there yet? It wouldn't have been fun. And so people generally uh, didn't bring the sacrificial animals with them. As I expect would happen here in Hong Kong, some entrepreneurial businessmen, they saw an opportunity. We can make a buck on this. And so they started um, selling sacrificial animals to these pilgrims, saying, for a little markup, you can buy one of our sheep and sacrifice it. And people coming from quite a distance, well, they would have had other types of money, and so they would need a currency exchange to spend uh, in the temple courts. And so there was a, a currency exchange booth set up. And, and so far, so logical, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem, however, was the location of the shops. We read in verse 13, So Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, there is some historical evidence to suggest that this was a recent innovation in the temple, that the um, Annas, the high priest emeritus, so the retired high priest, had welcomed in some of these merchants into the temple courts and, and allowed them to set up shop in the outer courtyards, the court of the Gentiles. And, of course, he charged them for that privilege. And that was a move that made him and his family very wealthy. Uh, the Jewish Talmud records him as and his family is being exceedingly greedy. And um, they, they don't have any favorable things to say about him. But it was a move that worked for him and worked for the merchants, obviously. But it enraged Jesus. And why is that? Well, well, the temple was designed to be a meeting place between God and his people. And it was built in concentric regions of holiness. So if you could bring up that first slide. got some images pulled from the ESV study Bible. Um, so the, the holiest place is back behind that patterned curtain. That's the Holy of Holies. And in there, the high priest can only enter in one time a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So uh, that is the holiest place. And just outside of that curtain is uh, a place where the, the other priests can go, not just the high priest, but the other priests offer incense, and they put the, the bread of the presence and other things in that region. And then if we go to the, the next slide, outside of the, the core temple unit itself, there's this series of courtyards. And so you can see a courtyard right in front of the, the big temple there. And, and that was the, the court of the men. And so faithful Jewish men who were ritually clean, they could come there to observe the sacrifices being made by the priests. And then you see that gate in, in front of that. Um, just beyond that gate, that's the court of the women. And so faithful Jewish women who are ritually clean, they can stand in there and observe through the gate as uh, the priests offer the sacrifices in front of the temple. And then outside of that, outside of these, this temple compound, there are courtyards. And if you go to the next slide, uh, this courtyard just... Um, between the, the kind of mid-sized mid wall and the small wall in there, that's the courtyard of the Gentiles and of the unclean, uh, ritually unclean Jews. So that's all the further in that non-Jewish people could get 
to the temple. That's all that they could see is kind of the walls around it, the smoke maybe rising up out of it, and maybe people celebrating in there, but that is their spot at the temple. And um, so there would likely have been Gentile seekers that had come from all around the world to worship the one true God of Israel in these temple courtyards. And they get there um, because Israel has always been meant to be a light to the nations. So they were given a law. They were given sacrificial practices. They were um, made God's people, not just so that they could feel good about themselves, but so that they could be a light to the nations, drawing all people to the one true God. And that was Solomon's prayer as he set up this temple. You'll remember, maybe from um, two kings, as he uh, prayed, dedicating the temple, he prayed that the nations would stream in from all around the world and that they would be able to pray at this temple and that God would hear their prayers and answer them so that they would know that he is the God of the universe. But when the nations came, they found their spot was taken by merchants and animals. The stench of livestock, the ringing of cash registers. And you can imagine it, can't you? Oh, you've just arrived from Ethiopia? How wonderful. We have an Africa bundle deal on today. Buy one sheep and get a dove free of charge. Yeah, it's a bit more expensive than you're used to, but these are Judean sheep, hand-raised. You don't get this sort of farm-to-altar service back where you're from. But if you're not going to buy anything, you need to move over there. You're interfering with my business. Pray by the cattle. Just watch where you kneel down. And that would send all the wrong messages about God. It said... He's not really interested in receiving the worship of Gentile peoples. In fact, Gentiles are a bit of an inconvenience to the Jews who want to buy their sacrifices and go in. It said that God was mostly just wanting to line the pockets of the high priest and the merchants. It said that his temple was just another disappointing tourist site rather than the dwelling place of God on earth. The people of Jerusalem and the high priests, they'd allowed their interests to interfere with people coming to know and to worship God, and Jesus was outraged by it. So he made a whip of cords, verse 15, and drove uh, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was so passionate that nothing should prevent his people from worshiping God, that it consumed him. That word, it it means it it ate him up inside. So far from a a badly tempered outburst, this is a sign of Jesus' love for people. He would overturn every obstacle that stood in the way of people relating to God. If he had to upset a religious establishment, if he had to scare people, if he had to damage prophets, if he had to flip tables and go against every social convention, he would do it so people could worship God. That is a very different picture 
than what most people have of God, some, somehow hiding up in, in the heavens and waiting to be discovered. If only we can work hard enough and uh, do enough pilgrimages and um, you know, serve him well enough, he'll reveal himself. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible casts off the obstacles that we put in place that keep people from worshiping him. And as he stood there in this now strangely quiet courtyard, breathing heavily, no doubt, the disciples recalled the words of Psalm 69, a psalm about how the Messiah's zeal for God's glory would lead to intense persecution, but that God would finally vindicate it. Friends, do you share Jesus' zeal for God's glory? Does it eat you up inside when you see obstacles preventing people from coming to know and worship him? Because all too often, I think we just sort of shrug and and focus on our own interests. It can't just be me who sees apathy in the church, in our church, but all churches. It can't just be me who feels apathy sometimes. I mean... Do we actually believe in a whip-cracking, table-flipping God? A God who so strongly, so zealously desires relationships with people that he will strike out against the obstacles that we put in place. He is not ambivalent about that. He commands his people to be a light to the nations, but we so often allow people to just sort of stumble around in the darkness because we have other concerns, don't we? And yet sometimes anger that drives us to action is the right response. Why should, let me give you a few examples. Why should the people in your company be expected to respond to emails and work on Sundays? You know, that prevents people from worshiping God with his people. Why should we accept that um, children's sports are are played on a Sunday morning? You know, that prevents children and parents and families from the most important task that they have, which is discipling uh, their children. Why should a student Christian club in a school, why should it struggle to find a teacher, a Christian teacher who will stand in and lead it on behalf of the students? You know, sometimes students want to have fellowship in a little club in their school. They're Christians. They want to be encouraged in the faith. And not one Christian teacher can stand up and take responsibility for it. Why? And in church life, why Should so many churches struggle to run Sunday schools, struggle to run youth groups, struggle to run home groups? You know, if Christians were zealous for God's glory, we would never lack leaders for those things. And if we know that God deserves the worship of our friends, of our families, and of our colleagues at work, well, why aren't we metaphorically flipping the tables to have those spiritual conversations with them? I think it's because we easily just get used to the status quo. 
you know, we say to ourselves, I know it's wrong, but I just want to get through my day. I have so much else on. I, I don't want to rock the boat. How else am I supposed to make a living? Where else should I sell my livestock? But Jesus' righteous anger at all that interferes with true worship, it should be a wake-up call to us. You know, maybe we need Jesus to step in and start overturning the tables of our hearts. Because some of us have become too complacent and too self-interested and too distracted to notice that God deserves the worship of every person you and I know. And this should jolt us into action, because if this is how God himself reacts, how can I respond with apathy? And perhaps radical action is required. You know, if, our, if we're bosses or supervisors, maybe we need to settle for lower productivity so that our employees can worship God on a Sunday and have that day completely and totally off. And if you're an employee whose job constantly interferes with your ability to worship God, whether that's on Sundays, whether that's in home groups, whether that's just your personal devotional life, well, maybe it's time for you to stand up gently but firmly say, no, I'm not going to do that extra thing. No, actually, this takes priority. Or maybe you need to change jobs. Or maybe some of us uh, need to step up and coach the football team, the, the rugby team, uh, so that, uh, coach it on a Saturday morning, so that somebody else doesn't coach it on a Sunday morning. Right? That's going to take sacrifice. Maybe you don't want to do that, but maybe that's, a way that you could preserve true worship. Or maybe, um, maybe you're just too busy and you need to make a whip to chase off those distractions, those things that eat away at your time, those um, parts of your life that keep you from doing evangelism, that keep you from joining a ministry team, that keep you from praying for others or uh, just getting to know other people. How are you going to evangelize people if you don't ever get to know them, if you work so late that you never have time to get a drink with the, the uh, colleagues at work, how are you going to know them? How are you going to bring them to God? You know, this, it isn't supposed to make you feel guilty. It's not supposed to give you a tick list of jobs. I'm not here trying to establish a, a political movement against Sunday morning sports or something like that. These are uh, examples. Maybe they don't apply to you, but it's a challenge to not just accept the status quo, which keeps people from worshiping God. Keeps you, maybe, from worshiping God. Sometimes radical change is required. And none of those things are easy. I don't want to pretend that they are. It's a challenge. But, but neither was it easy to oppose that twisted market system that so many people had a financial interest in setting up in the temple, and yet Jesus goes in and he does something about it. He was consumed by zeal for God's glory, and he took action. And as his people, wherever we see obstacles, preventing someone from coming to know and worship God, we too should be outraged, we too should take action. Not outraged against other people, outraged at the obstacles. 
brings me to uh, the second point. That Jesus is so sacrificially committed to establishing true worship. He is sacrificially committed to establishing true worship. Notice that as, um, as outrageous as this temple cleansing was, nobody questions, nobody, nobody questions that it was the right thing to do. Nobody claims Jesus did the wrong thing. They saw it as a prophetic act, something that the Messiah would do. Their only question was, does Jesus have the authority to do something like this? Yeah, the Messiah would clear out the temple. Does Jesus have authority to do that, though? And in verse 18, we read, The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They saw the sign of the temple cleansing, and they wanted another sign to authenticate that sign. Jesus doesn't give them what they ask for, though. Instead, he says that his authority will be clear when he does something much more radical than just uh, cleaning up a courtyard. He will completely replace the temple, is what he says. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, this is an astonishing claim, uh, one that they obviously didn't understand. Keep in mind that under the Old Covenant, the temple was the dwelling place of God on earth, and that people traveled from all over the known world to, to come and to worship God there. And Jesus is going to be a new and better temple than that. People will no longer need to travel to Jerusalem, but will come to Jesus to worship God. Rather than offering sacrificial animals for sin, uh, they will receive forgiveness of sins through his body. Rather than needing a priest to intercede for them, they can come to him directly. But that's only going to happen after the destruction of the temple, brick by brick, and stone by stone. It's only as his body is broken on the cross that the way is made open to God's presence. As his, as blood was shed, his life poured out. The old religious system was destroyed, dismantled. All the barriers between God and humanity were torn down, brick by brick and stone by stone. Sin that created a distance between a sinful humanity and a holy God wiped out, dismantled. God's righteous anger at our rebellion, it, it was taken by Jesus. The need to sacrifice and to work and to earn a standing before God, a place with him, that was done away with at the cross. Jesus was so zealous for God's glory. He was so passionate for true worship that he sacrificed himself to open the way for all people, for you and I. It's what we're going to be celebrating in a few minutes together around the Lord's Supper. And then three days later, he rose, becoming the new temple through whom all people of the earth could relate to God and worship him rightly. And his disciples, they recalled that. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
Jesus came to cleanse the earthly temple with an act of righteous anger. He chased away everything that interfered with uh, people being able to meet God. But we know from the other Gospels, uh, the, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Mark, Luke, and, and Matthew, that it was only two years later when he came back into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, he found uh, the, the traitors in the temple courts again, and he cleansed it again. And you know, it might be that he needs to overturn the tables of your hearts this morning, and my hearts. Maybe he needs to clear away the false worship. Maybe he needs to clear away the self-interest, the distraction, the, the busyness. But however painful that might be, know that he does it to bring about something far better. Through his body and his blood, he opened the way to true fellowship with God. And he invites all people to come, to taste, to see that the Lord is good. Allow me to pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus made a way for all people to come to worship you truly and to know you fully. And we confess that we too often have been apathetic about the obstacles that stand in others' ways, the, the obstacles that we place the way of other people. Clear those things out. Make us aware of them. Help us to see and lead us to a better way. Lord, we know that um, we need your help to do this. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.